You're listening to the Strategies at Work podcast for January 2009. Today's episode is titled, How to Become Rich. In Revelation 3, 17-18, the Lord spoke to the Christians in the ancient city of Laodicea. The city of Laodicea was a financially prosperous, multicultural marketplace city, very similar to cities today such as New York, Dallas, San Francisco, Seattle, Calgary, and Toronto. Because of the financial success enjoyed by the Laodiceans, there was a presumption of wealth, security, and independence. The reality is that they were wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Don't be deceived by thinking that money is the measure of success. Money is only a small measure of success. The real measure of success is wisdom from God. If you want real, lasting success in life, make it a priority to pursue wisdom. And now Dr. Chester presents How to Become Rich. Well, good morning to you. Well, I want to talk to you today about how to become rich. Would anybody like to know that? We've got a few hands there, a few skeptics here thinking, what does getting rich have to do with God, right? That's kind of what we think, isn't it? We think rich, that's what we do at work and it has nothing to do with God. Well, maybe I'll be able today to share with you a different perspective. But first, to kind of set the stage, let's just uh, kind of get a sense of, uh, of what Christianity is like for most of us. I'm going to tell you a little, little story. Um, I'll read it to you. An honest man was being tailgated by a stressed-out woman on a busy boulevard. Suddenly, the light turned yellow just in front of him. He did the right thing, stopping at the crosswalk, even though he could have beat the the red light by accelerating through the intersection. The tailgating woman hit the roof and and the horn, screaming in frustration as she missed her chance to get through the intersection. As she was still in the middle of her ranting and raving, she heard a tap-tap on her window and looked up into the face of a very serious police officer. The officer ordered her to exit her car with her hands up. He took her to the police station where she was searched, fingerprinted, photographed, and placed in a holding cell. After a couple of hours, the police officer approached the cell and opened the door. She was escorted back to the booking desk where the arresting officer was waiting with her personal effects. He said, I'm very sorry for this mistake. You see, I pulled up behind your car while you were blowing your horn and cursing a blue streak at the man in front of you. I noticed the Choose Life license plate holder, the What Would Jesus Do bumper sticker, the Follow Me to Sunday School bumper sticker, and the chrome-plated Christian fish emblem on the trunk. So naturally, I assumed that you had stolen the car. (laughs) There's some reality in this for us. And the reality is that that we frequently disconnect from our faith. We come to church on Sunday and we profess to know Jesus. We profess to walk with Jesus and honor him. We worship Jesus in song. But in reality, we're like this, this lady here. When we get outside, we disconnect. And so that's the challenge for all of us. So this morning, I'm going to talk a little bit about, about the three basic paradigms of life. And all of us have got to pick one of these paradigms, and that paradigm is going to define everything we do in life. And I'm going to use Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 as the text. So if you would turn there, I would like to read it and give you a little background information before we get started. 
So while you're looking that up, let me just say this about the book of Revelation. I know it's a very challenging book, and you're probably stunned that I would use a text out of that book. Well, I did not plan to use a text out of that book. I planned to use a text out of the book of Colossians. Colossians is the sister city of the city Laodicea. So in my preparation for my message out of Colossians, I started looking at the letter in Revelation to Laodicea. And as I read that letter, I suddenly saw that I think the Lord was saying to me, he wanted you to hear this letter. And he wanted me to share with you what I think he's saying through this letter. And the reason for it is it's a very relevant letter. Now, you say, well, how is it relevant? Well, the city of Laodicea is very much like your city. It was a city of commerce. It was a city of business. It was a city where the gospel had been preached. And interestingly enough, it had been preached by one of Paul's uh, disciples. In fact, the whole, all of Asia Minor, you may recall, Paul had a desire to go and preach the gospel in Asia Minor, and he was not allowed. Do you all remember that in Acts uh, 16? And so what happened is a few, uh, a few years later, Paul wounds up in Ephesus, which is, it is in Asia Minor, but it's the only city in Asia Minor we think that Paul really had an influence on directly. He's there, and in that city, he is being rejected by the Jews. So what he did is he gathered together 12 disciples, and these disciples were disciples of Apollos. And he spent two years with these disciples every day teaching them the word of God. And then the text says, as a result of that discipleship class, all of Asia heard the word of God. And we know that, that one of those disciples was a man named Epaphras. And Epaphras is the one that founded the church in Colossae. And we suspect, since Colossae and Laodicea were just about seven miles apart, that he very likely could have been influential, if not the founding man of the church in Laodicea. So Laodicea was founded by a, by a disciple of Jesus Christ, specifically the Apostle Paul, and the city was a city of commerce, a, a, a city in which the focus was on money. Everything was about money. So as we read through here, listen to this with that backdrop. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, these are the words of the amen. Let me just stop for a second and say something about amen. Amen was a Hebrew practice. It was a term that was used when they spoke the Torah or the Old Testament. People would say amen, meaning that what you have just spoken, I am imputing to me as if I spoke it. That's what amen means. And that's been brought into Christian tradition. We use it kind of, you know, just throw it around. You know, we don't really know what it means. But when you say amen, what you're saying is I, I, I am identifying with you as you have spoken those words. It's the same as me speaking those words. So this is the amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. Who is it that you think is talking here? Jesus, Jesus Christ is the one who's talking here. So notice he's talking here to professing believers in the city of Laodicea. He says this to them. I know your deeds. Now that word deeds is not what we think it means. We think of a deed as, well, there's a lady that's having a hard time getting across the street, so I'm going to go help her across the street. We call that a good deed, don't we? That's what we think of deeds. That's not what this word means. This word deeds is the Greek word ergon. The Greek word ergon means work of all types. 
He's saying, I know your works. I know how you work in the workplace. I know how you govern your community. I know how you educate your children. I now know how you raise your children. I know everything about you because I'm looking at everything you do. That's what he's talking about. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spew you out of my mouth. Now, this is obviously a metaphor here, using a, a beverage metaphor here. Now, most of you probably like some kind of drink, coffee or tea or something like that. I like tea. Now, I like iced tea. One of the things I've discovered about Canada is you don't understand how to make iced tea. So we need to teach you that. But iced tea is very delicious. And it's very nice on a hot day you come in and, and drink iced tea. It's very refreshing. And when it's really cold, it's nice to have hot tea. What I do not like is lukewarm tea. That is not does not taste good. It is yucky, as we say in the South. And so if I were to put some lukewarm tea in my mouth, I might just spit it out because it is distasteful. And so that's the metaphor here that Jesus is saying here is your works are totally distasteful to me. I don't like them. He says, because you're lukewarm, neither hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not have do not need a thing. Now, I would submit to you that we we all are saying that. That's a very common thing. Now, you might say, well, I don't have a lot of money. It doesn't matter. You know, if you travel around and you see what poverty looks like. Probably everybody in this room compared to the real poverty in the world is rich. I've had the privilege to be in South Africa. And South Africa is a disaster zone right now because there are refugees from Zimbabwe coming across. It's uncontrolled. They cannot manage it. Thousands, maybe millions of people flooding into South Africa. They have no jobs. The unemployment rate in South Africa when I was there a year ago was close to 50 percent. What's your unemployment rate here? Six percent? Yeah. Six, seven percent, eight percent. Can you imagine 50 percent? Can you get a concept of that? I mean, think about this. I'm driving along. I've just been picked up at the Johannesburg airport, and my host is driving me through on this very nice freeway. I'm thinking, well, this just looks like Texas to me. And then all of a sudden, I see this site that I don't, I can't even describe. It's a bunch of cardboard shacks, and people are living in these cardboard shacks with no water, no sanitation, no heat, no cooling, no nothing. Dirt floors. Water comes in when it rains. You guys feel rich now? Does that get a picture? Well, I, <clears throat> we all can say what is said here in Laodicea. I've acquired wealth, and I don't need anything, because we put security, we denominate security in terms of dollar bills. Then he says this. He says, you guys are deceived. But you don't realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. Well, that's a real encouraging group of adjectives there. I thought I was doing pretty well. Look, I go to church on Sunday, and I go to work on Monday, and I make money, and I take care of my family, and we have fun, and I tithe, and we do all this stuff. 
But Jesus says, you don't realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. He says, I counsel you. How many of you, if you knew Jesus was going to say, I counsel you, would listen? Hopefully all would listen. Jesus says, I counsel you. I'm going to give you a word of advice. Buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love, I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. Now, if you've been around Christianity in length of time, you've probably have seen tracts that have used that text as an appeal for people to accept Christ. Now, you need to recognize that Jesus is not talking to unsaved people here. He's talking to you and me, to the people that profess to know Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So while I'm okay with, you know, using the words, I want to recognize that that's not really what the text is saying. It's not true to the text. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Now, what I want to talk to you this morning about is really some applications of this text and what it means to us. And to give you a sense of this, I want to talk to you about three paradigms of authority. And I'm going to introduce these and I'm going to define them for you and tell you what they mean. First one is full dualism. The second one is partial dualism. And the third one is holism. Now, dualism is the bifurcation of spiritual and physical reality. Now, those of you that are in school, do you know what bifurcation means? The children should know because they're in school. The adults, we've forgotten what we learned. But the children ought to know. Some of, the, some of you high school students, have you had bifurcation yet? Bifurcation is the splitting. It's the division. We take reality and we split it into pieces. We say this is physical and this is spiritual. That's what dualism does. And it goes on beyond that. It generally gives additional credibility to one or the other. For example, if you lived in the first century, uh, you would have probably run into Gnostics. Gnostics, Gnosticism was declared by the church to be a heresy. The Gnostics believed that anything was physical, like this chair right here, that was inherently evil because it was physical. The only thing that was good was intangible, the spirit realm. That was all that was good. So that was their belief. The church declared that as, as fundamentally heretical. While man is depraved and has a sin nature, it's, it's not the physical flesh that's evil. It's my sinful heart in me that's evil so what what dualism does is it tends to minimize the value of physical reality and it exalts spiritual reality so what that does for let's say that in the workplace what that means is most people that embrace dualism think that work is not a spiritual activity would you all agree with that you might say well that's what i think that's what most people think it's not a spiritual activity. Well, that's dualism. 
So I just want to give you that quick illustration of it. We'll talk more in detail as we go along. Now, let me just talk to you how, how this plays out. There are five spheres of authority that God has, has designed. If God is the creator of everything, can we can see that? He creates everything. And we are obviously living in his, his, uh, his playground, if you wish. And uh, if we're going to be in his playground, do you think he might make the rules? Does that make sense? He created everything. He made the rules. Okay, so what he's decided to do is to delegate authority. And he's delegated authority in basically five jurisdictions. The first jurisdiction is the individual. You have authority and responsibility for your life. You make decisions that impact you and your relationship to God. Do you agree with that? Okay. All right. The next one is family. He's delegated authority to parents to raise their family. The third one is the workplace. When you go into the workplace, whose authority are you under? Your boss. Where did he get that authority? From God. If God has ordained that he's, that person start a company, he started a company, whether he knows it or not, his boss is God. And now when you go to work for him, you're working under the delegated authority of the boss. And then finally, government. Government is how we as a community govern ourselves, whether it's locally or as a province or as the country here. And the government exists under God as well. God defined the rules of government. So our governing authorities, their job is really to discern God's rules for governing us, a people. And when they do that, then they are operating under the delegated authority of God to govern us. Finally, the church. The church is a sphere of authority. It is the pillar and ground of truth, according to the Apostle Paul. Now, what do you need to live life in any way? To solve any problem in life, what do you need? Do you need truth? Do you need truth? And a, a corollary of that would be knowledge and wisdom. Now, what you need to solve problems? And let me define knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge is understanding how God made the world to work. That's what knowledge is. Wisdom is the understanding of how to apply that knowledge to live, live properly in God's universe. So that's what we need. you got any kind of problem in life, you need knowledge and wisdom, which is, which is the same as truth. The church is supposed to be the pillar and ground of the truth, which means it's been ordained by God to be the disseminator of truth for all the jurisdictions. Now, in a position which we call full dualism, this position basically you see there's no connection between the church and any of the other jurisdictions. You see they're just separate circles. Now, that, that is, this is a very rare position because the only people that really would, would embrace this position are generally atheists and agnostics. There was a survey done a few years ago by Baylor University trying to determine what percent of the population is atheistic or agnostic. And they had thought that the prior surveys led them to believe it was about 10%. They actually discovered it was lower than that. They discovered that only about 5% of the population is truly atheist or agnostic. And let me say this about agnostics. Agnostics are atheists who are chickens. Okay, do you know why that? Why that is? Because they have this presupposition that I can claim that I don't know, and it's like that's an intellectually superior position than saying I don't believe in God. But so far, anecdotally, in my experience, I've never met an agnostic who was anything other than an atheist. So 
I really lump them together. They're all atheists to me. Now, I want to say this about, about the reality of the world. Do you know that among men who are alive, there are really very few atheists and agnostics. But among the demons, there are no atheists or agnostics. Did you know that? In fact, among the deceased, there are no atheists or agnostics. You ever thought about that? There's a reality check when we die. We're going to go meet God one way or the other. And if we haven't accepted Christ, it's, not, it's going to be the other. And so the only people that are atheists or agnostics are the people that profess to be atheists that are alive at this point in time. Isn't that a startling thing? Even the demons know that God exists. And what they're trying to do is deceive you and to think he doesn't exist. Fortunately, by the grace of God, they don't have a lot of success because only 5% of the people really profess that. Okay, so very few people are really full, dual, full dualist. But there are a whole lot of people that are partial dualist. And I submit to you, um, I would, if, if I really could sit down and spend time with you, I'd probably discover that most of you are partial dualist. And if you talked to me 20 years ago, you would have found out I was a partial dualist. I was a partial dualist until somebody loved, loved me enough to challenge me. So I'm here today loving you enough to challenge you. Can I, will you let me do that? Would you let me challenge you? I really, I really want to help you here see something that maybe you haven't seen before. What is partial dualism? Partial dualism basically believes that Christianity or the church has relevance only to, to the individual and to the family. That's pretty much it. The full dualism says Christianity or the church has no relevance to anything. Partial dualism says it has some relevance. It's relevant to me as an individual, and it's relevant to my family. But when I get outside of that into to government, for example, in the United States, we have this term separation of church and state. Have you all heard that? Okay, that is a lie. You cannot separate church and state. It's been real interesting to watch the political campaign in the United States. As the politicians go about campaigning, they go into churches looking for votes. They'll come and preach at a church, look for votes. But then they walk outside to a press conference and say, we're not going to let our faith have anything to do with our policies. They say that. They say those kinds of things. I am, I am dying to be somewhere where I can raise my hand and say, if your faith is not going to direct your policies, what is? Tell me what is. If your faith doesn't direct who you are in life, what does? You see, ultimately, we're all people of faith. You know, I was trained as a scientist. And one of the lies that my professors told me was that they were people of reason. And I bought the lie. Because they were my professors, and they ought to know, right? They were PhDs, and they were smart guys. And so I believed them. I never stopped and think, wait a minute. How do I know that my brain is processing information correctly? How do I know my senses are telling me what's really going on? How do I know I'm really seeing what's there? Ultimately, I have to have faith in my rational faculties to, be, to, to know anything. So there I am, a person of faith. You see, that's the reality. We're all people of faith. Can anybody prove that God exists? No, you can't. Can you prove he doesn't exist? No, you can't. Every one of us has to make a bet on God.
can I say that in church? Can I say bed? Is it okay? She said vomit. Surely I can say bed. Yeah. Okay. Now, what I mean by that, I don't mean that in a, in a sense like a, a Las Vegas gambler, but I mean in a sense you, have, you're, you are gambling your life because you, ha- you have assumed something about who God is. And whatever that assumption is, is your theology, and now that's going to drive everything in your life. In fact, one of the things I teach in the seminar, I don't have time to do it here, is that anytime you see bad behavior, the root of that bad behavior is bad theology. So if you want to fix bad behavior, you have to go and fix the theology, which is why the church is so important. The church should be giving us sound theology so we know how to live life. That's, that's what we've got to get to is understanding what the church really is. So this is partial dualism. It's very common. It basically says that Christianity has nothing to do with work, has nothing to do with government. It only has to do with the individual and the family. You mind if I tell you a story? Uh, this is an older picture of a, of a guy named Bob. Uh, when he was much younger, in the early part of the 20th century, he was a, an entrepreneur who started a little car repair shop. So he starts this car repair shop, and he, uh, he he's rocking along, and he had a partner with him who, by the way, he was unequally yoked. And those of you who have read my book, you'll know what that means. So anyway, over a period of, of a couple of years, they did find, and suddenly things started going south, and boom, they went broke. So Bob has to shut it down. He winds up in debt and uh, got all these creditors. And that was a time when you didn't just discharge your debts through bankruptcy. You paid your creditors. Different time. So anyway, he goes to work on a ranch. And he discovers he loves moving dirt. Now, this is back in the early part of the 20th century. They didn't have a lot of fancy equipment. Their, their tractors were pretty primitive. But he loved reshaping dirt. It was just, it was creative to him. He just, just absolutely loved it. But he still was weighed down with this debt. And so one day he's at home and uh, he's kind of moping around, kind of depressed. And his sister's there. You know, you love sisters, don't you? You know what's coming. Sister says to him, Hey, Bob, don't you love Jesus? He said, Sure, I love Jesus. He says, Why are you walking around so depressed? He said, well, you know, I've got all this debt from the prior business, and I've got a great job, but it, it's going to take me forever to pay off this debt. I don't see how to get out of this hole, and it's just really discouraging. He says, don't you love Jesus? Yes, I love Jesus. <laughs> Bob, I don't think you love Jesus. I love Jesus. I go to church on Sunday. I go to church on Wednesday night. You know, I tithe. I go on a mission trip every year. I help out with the boys. I do everything. I love Jesus. She says, Bob, you need to think about that. What you've done is you've just ticked off a bunch of things, like a scorecard. He says, do you really love Jesus, Bob? Now, Bob is about to spit his teeth. He's really mad. But he walks away, walks away and he starts pondering this. And he realizes there's something wrong with him. Not only is he financially bankrupt, he realizes I'm spiritually bankrupt. Yeah, I go to church, I look like a model Christian, but there's something in me that's really bankrupt. So he found out there was going to be a revival. And back then, early part of the 20th century, I know these, your kids are going to have a hard time with this, they only had one car for the ranch, for everybody on the ranch. And there were a bunch of people on the ranch. So you've got to figure out some way to get the car to go to town to go to the revival. Not only one night, but he wants to go every night. 
So he has to do some finagling and negotiating with other people at the ranch, but he finally gets the car. So he starts going to revival. And he walks in. He's a typical, this is, I think it was a Baptist church. And I grew up, y'all grew up Baptist? I grew up Baptist. Anybody grow up Baptist? <laughs> Baptists are known for being the back row people. So he, he slides in the back and he sits on the back row trying to, trying to be inconspicuous. Nobody, nobody knows he's there. And they have, they have great, great music and a great message. And, 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 you know, he's feeling like, oh man, this is what I needed. I needed to hear the word of God. So I'm going to come back tomorrow night. So he does it the next night. The next night, the next night, finally the, the last night of the revival comes and he's going to come. So he comes and, he, you know, he's been immersed now in the truth of the gospel for five nights. That last night he's there, he's back on the back row, and of course he's singing, but he's trying to be incognito, inconspicuous. Nobody's noticed he's there, but he is really being touched. God is doing a work on him. And so by the time the service is over, he just sits there and lets everybody leave. And then he goes up to the front after everybody's left, and he walks up into the front area here, and he fell on his face and wept before God and prayed and asked God to, re- to forgive him for his sin, forgive him for being a Pharisee, for worshiping money, for not trusting him, for all just everything he could think of. He is just pouring out his heart. He just says, I don't know how long I was there. I was there for a long time. But it seemed like just like that. When he finally got up, he felt a peace like he had never experienced. There was something in him that was alive that had never been alive before. And so he went home that night and he knew that he had encountered God. And he knew that he had to give his life to Christ. That he had to commit the rest of his life to walking with God. And so he assumed that meant... They'd have to give up working the farm. And boy, he loved working the farm. So there's part of him that was getting kind of sad as he's meditating on this. And he realized the next morning I gotta go see the pastor. Because he's gonna have to tell me what to do, because I don't know what to do to serve serve God. I know I've, I've got to be a pastor or a missionary or something, but I don't know what exactly what to do. So that night he couldn't hardly sleep, so he goes out and he wanders around the, the equipment that he uses during the day. That he loves. He loves this earth moving equipment. He just, just loved working with dirt and moving things around and recreating things and putting, bringing order out of chaos that was just a joy to him. So he just wanders around and finally it's, it's about 5 a.m. in the morning. So he gets the car and he drives over to the pastor's house. He knocks on the door. The pastor comes to the back door in his pajamas and slippers and, you know, I guess pastors don't get up early. Anyway, the pastor is not totally surprised because pastors, you know, know. They have a sense of what's going on in their flock. So he says, come on in, Bob. Would you like a cup of coffee? No, 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 I, we just need to talk. Well, come on into my study. So th- they went into his study, and, and Bob starts sharing with the pastor all that happened. And, of course, the pastor isn't totally surprised. And he, what surprised the pastor was when Bob says, well, you know, now that I've, I've really had this encounter with God, and I know I, I can't live for myself anymore, I have got to live for God, I need you to tell me what to do. The pastor very wisely said, Bob, let's pray. And so they just sat down and prayed. Bob poured out his heart. The pastor just spoke a blessing over him. When they got through praying, the pastor looked up at Bob and said, Bob, I want to tell you something. God needs businessmen. He said, what? 
God needs businessmen? Yes. You don't have to be an evangelist. You don't have to be a pastor. You don't have to be a Bible teacher. You don't have to be a missionary. You don't have to be on staff at some church. You don't have to do that. Now, God, God has people called to that. But God calls people to move dirt. Bob says, really? Are you serious? He said, yes. God calls people to do all kinds of things. We're here to bring dominion to his creation. And Bob is just stunned at this. He doesn't know what to think. How could this be? But at the same time, he felt a freedom coming upon him. A joy. He just, he could not explain it. What happened last night with the Lord was so powerful, but what was happening in this pastor's study was even more powerful. It was like a a liberation. I've been freed to do what I've been put here to do. I'll tell you the rest of the story in a minute. But let me go ahead and talk to you about, about my thesis about how we get to Bob's perspective. How is it that Bob thought that he had to be a pastor or a missionary or a Bible teacher because he had an encounter with God? That's what most of us think. We have an encounter like Bob. We, we default to assuming that that defines the profession we have to, to, have to uh, adopt. Well, let me suggest to you that that is not true. Now, I want to just look back here at Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 22. And I want to highlight to you two things. It says, I know your deeds, the ergon again. That is, the things that you're doing, the works that you're doing. Now, my thesis is this. If you're a partial dualist, then you are going to be lukewarm. If you're a partial dualist, you're going to be lukewarm. He's talking about here men whose deeds God dislikes. Now, what is it that causes God to dislike deeds? May I suggest what God dislikes is that which doesn't line up with him. Would you agree? He doesn't like that. Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus was probably a carpenter for at least 18 years? You ever thought about that? You know, when he was 12, he probably became a full-time apprentice for his dad. He didn't enter his, his itinerant preaching ministry until he's 30. So that's 18 years, isn't it? At least that's by, that's by old math. Is new math? Is it still 18? Okay. By old math is 18. Well, so you've got Jesus, the carpenter. Now, you know, when Jesus, right before he died on the cross, he had a conversation with his father. And in that conversation, he has some very interesting definitions for us. He defines eternal life for one. Just as a side point, you know what he, how he defines eternal life? Does anybody remember? It's not going to heaven. It's not living forever. Whoops. That blew my definition. He defines eternal life as knowing the Father. Knowing the Father. John 73, look it up. Now, not right now, I'm just telling you, you can look it up. You need to be good Bereans and look it up. Okay, then John 17, 4 gives us an even more incredible definition of success. Y'all want to be a success? Anybody here want to be a success? Okay, you want to be a success? All right, you need to know how success is defined. 
Now, we think success is uh, having a bunch of money or having a bunch of power or being influential, right? You know what we think? We think, was Bill Gates a success? Is he a success? Yes or no? Come on, is he a success? He is? Why is he a success? Because of money. He's got a bunch of money. Jesus Christ died broke. Was he a success? Yes. Wait a minute. He didn't have any money. How could he be a success? Huh? But you said money was success. Jesus didn't have money. How was he a success? I shared this with a group recently, and somebody said, well, it's a different definition. <laughs> you hear the dualism? One definition for Bill Gates and another definition for Jesus. God doesn't work that way. There's one definition of success. May I suggest John 17:4 gives you that definition? Jesus said this, Father, he's talking to the Father, I have brought you glory on earth by completing the ergon that you gave me to do. What's ergon mean? The works. The works. All of your activities. That's what Jesus defined as his success. Is his works reflected his father. And he completed what he had been assigned to do. In other words, he had done his assignment. Now, you kids, uh, y'all get homework anymore? Do they, they do homework at school? Okay, when you, go, when you go to school the next day and you haven't done your assignment, you haven't done your homework, what happens? Don't tell me nothing. Tell me there's some penalty here. If you were in my class, in my physics class, you would flunk. Okay? Because I'm expecting you to do the homework. I assigned it to you. I'm your authority. Jesus recognized that the Father assigned him work to do. His life was his work. All the things that he did was his work. And he realized his job was to do it. Your job is to find the work you've been assigned to do and to do it. That's what we all are here to do. Success is doing the works that we've been assigned to do. So that's the game that we're all in. So here in this text, here in Revelation chapter 3, where he talks about Jesus says, I know your deeds. The reason you're lukewarm is because you're not doing what I've assigned you to do. Or you're not doing what I've assigned you to do the way I've assigned you to do it. Have you all ever looked at the book of Colossians and see what Jesus says about work there? Have you all ever paid any attention to that? Colossians chapter 3, verse 17 says this. You can look it up if you want. Colossians three seventeen, And whatever you do, in word or deed, that word deed is Aragon again, do all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Now, as I've meditated on that, I came up with a little kind of a device that kind of helped me think about how to do that. And that is, I need a stamp. And the stamp says, done in the name of the Lord Jesus. And so everything that I do, I want to be able to put that stamp on it. What does that do to you? That work product, whatever it is. Homework assignment, boom, done in the name of the Lord Jesus. You're an auditor, maybe a tax return, boom, done in the name of the Lord Jesus. How about a pastor, a sermon, boom, done in the name of the Lord Jesus. It reflects him. 
It reflects the character and nature of Christ who reflects the character and nature of God. You see, what was going on here in Laodicea is these guys weren't doing that. They were not either in their assignment or they weren't doing it in a way that glorified God. One of those two, and I would submit to you, it's because of the partial dualism in them that led them to be lukewarm. I must confess to you, when I look back on my life as a partial dualist, I was very lukewarm. Hopefully that's convicting some of you because this is a very serious thing. This is the essence of life. If you just come and play church on Sunday, you're just playing church. You're playing. But God's into the real thing. And all it takes is a reality check like death or serious disease and you get it. My dad just died six weeks ago. That was a reality check for me. I looked at his dead body, and I said, God, I want to see everything you want me to see right now from this experience. And he said, I'm serious. I'm serious, guys. This is, this is not a game. You can't come play church. He said, I'm into making disciples who will do my will. And I have assignments for everybody. You need to pick up your assignment and go do it. And I expect you to do it according to my principles. So if you don't, you're lukewarm. And if, you get, if you're lukewarm, you get spewed out. That's a serious thing. That's a very serious thing for any of us. Okay, let's go on to holism here. And holism, what you have is the church, which is the pillar and ground of truth, which is the source of knowledge and wisdom now for everything we need in life, should be defining the worldview that we have in everything. Now, you might say, wait a minute, wait a minute. What about... Medicine and physics and all this stuff. What's, what's the church got to do with that? The church needs to be telling us the worldview we need to use to approach medical science and physics. Have you ever paid attention to the symbol of medicine today? I don't know if there's any doctors here. But if you look at the symbol of medicine, that symbol is rooted in Greek mythology. I, I think medicine, had it been developed with more attention to a biblical worldview would be much further along. You know, we think that we're advanced. Oh, hey, there's so much more. We continually learn about how God made the universe. Physics. Uh, I was trained in that field. The holy grail of physics is to take the basic forces of the universe. You guys know these? This will be on the exam now. Okay. Okay. Gravity, electricity, magnetism, the strong force, the weak force. Those are the four basic forces of the universe, and put them into one theory, where one theory explains all of those four forces. They have been struggling on that for years. Einstein wrestled with it. He died in 1955. About uh, 25 years ago, a theory was posited that we need to view it as, a, as what they called a, s- a series of strings. This was called string theory. Now, one of the things about scientists, that scientists have adopted a lot of biblical principles. So one of the principles is they look for where does, where does this thing lead you? If you take this theory, let's take it to its logical conclusions. And the logical end of string theory is very, it's very unsatisfying. It does not really describe reality well. So most physicists have discarded string theory, and now they're positing something new. And they're positing that there's some mysterious thing that's holding everything together. Does this sound like Colossians? Like Jesus holding the universe together? 
which is exactly what it says in Colossians 1? I said, ah, they're getting closer. But see, the church should have been telling them this over the last two or three centuries. Say, guys, Jesus is the glue of the universe. And as you study science, you need to be looking for Jesus and building off that reality that he's the glue of the universe. And you won't run off on all these rabbit trails and waste all this money and all this time. By the way, that's what happens. When you don't walk in God's principles and God's ways, you're going to be inefficient. You're going to waste time and money. Have you ever thought about that? Inefficiency is due to sin. Is that a shocker for anybody? Wait, want to throw anything at me? Okay. I know the business world, you know, you say that thing. Most business guys are saying, what? What's sin got to do with business? It's got everything to do with business. Because when you are doing what you're called to do in God's ways, there's flavor. There's, there's favor to do it. There's provision. There's a flow. There's revelation. Things happen. You go start studying the, the, great, the great developments of science. What you will find more often than not, it was men who were meditating on the word of God in some way. Einstein's great theory of relativity, even though he was a pagan... In many ways, he was, a, he was a Jew who didn't practice his Judaism, so he was a pagan. He is, his fundamental assumption was that the speed of light is the same no matter what frame of reference you're in. What is light a symbol of? It's a symbol of Christ. Christ is the same no matter what reference frame you're in. He meditated on that, and even though he didn't know Christ, he stumbled on a, on a reality that enabled him to come up with that theory. That's the way the universe works. When you discover God's knowledge and God's principles, you will find revelation about how this world works. So that's what we have to be about, is discovering God's ways. So, back to our holism here. Does everybody see 1 Timothy 3.15? Paul is saying, he's talking to Timothy, as Timothy was his spiritual son. How many of you have spiritual sons? If you don't have spiritual sons, you need to get some spiritual sons. You may have, you may have physical sons too, but you need spiritual sons. Spiritual sons can be physical sons, and they can be sons who are not your natural children. Spiritual sons are sons you're pouring your DNA into. What God's put in you, you're putting into them. Everybody needs sons. Timothy's a son. He's talking to his son saying, If I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct yourselves themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of the truth. Holistic Christianity realizes and recognizes this reality. And so when you get there, then people like, this is R.G. Letourneau, in case you didn't know, who went on to build one of the great companies that existed in the 20th century. And he did it because he was commissioned by his pastor because he recognized the call on the man and he released him to his destiny. And that's what holistic Christianity does. Whatever you're called to do, the people that are around you that know you and are walking with you should be helping you identify it. Well, Debbie identified she's got a vision for, you know, eventually be going into social work and to working with, uh, with people with eating disorders. She's getting a vision. How did she get that vision? God orchestrated the events in her life to put that vision in her. And now she sees where she's going. We need to get around her and, and, and we need to pray and say, Lord, are we seeing that vision for her? If we agree with that vision, we affirm it in her and we call it out and we support her. We help her get equipped to go do that. That's the way the body of Christ should be working. That's what holistic Christianity looks like. Does that look different to you? Hopefully it looks different to you. 
because it's been hugely different to me and made a huge difference in my life. Okay, back to this text. He says, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in fire. How do you do that? How do you buy gold refined in fire? Would you think you could do it with money? You think you could write a check, use your credit card? Would that do it? May I suggest that's not the way it works. The way you buy gold is that you embrace the reality of God's universe, how he made it to work. And what we've been expressing with holism is the reality that God makes all the rules. And if he makes all the rules, then we need to discern what those rules are and line up with those rules, whether it's how we live individually or how we live as a family or how we live in our churches, how we live in our businesses, how we live in our communities. Those five jurisdictions where God has delegated authority, we need to learn those rules. And then we need to learn specifically what we have been created to do. Did you notice with Debbie, I'm not picking on you, Debbie, but you just gave me a great, great illustration. Is there anybody here that's had Debbie's experience? Now, you may have had some of those experiences, but nobody's had all of the experiences the way she's had them. And that's true for everybody here. We can pick anybody here, and you are unique. There's nobody else like you. And God has created you and orchestrated your life to lead you to the ergon that he wants you to do. Just like Jesus said, success was doing what God, the Father, had given him to do. Success for you and me is the same thing. So what's the Father given you to do? How would you know what it is? Did you know some biblical tools to help you find that out? And that's what we talked about in the seminar. And I hope the people that were there got a revelation of how the Bible gives us a lot of clues as to how to discover our race. But we've got to be willing to go search it out. You know, one of the interesting things about the way God made the universe to work is, is just it's pictured in birth. Uh, I, was, uh, I was in graduate school when my oldest daughter was born, and, but I had a chance to go into the delivery room. How many have been in a delivery room? Okay, it's a marvelous thing, isn't it? It's a wonder. Now, it's a, it's a bad thing to put a scientist in the delivery room, okay? And why is that? Well, because a scientist is always evaluating and inspecting everything, okay? We're looking at all the data points to try to understand what's going on. So what we have here is this thing comes out of my wife's body, and now I'm going to inspect it, okay? And so I'm looking at all the pieces and the parts and everything and, and very carefully, and I notice there's something missing, in the lab, when we get a piece of equipment, there's always a nameplate telling me who made it and, you know, various parameters about it. But I looked on my daughter and there wasn't a nameplate. I said, there's something wrong here. I need a nameplate. I need a nameplate that says, um, this is Lisa, and this is why I created her, love God. There was no nameplate. Hey, what's the deal here? So now I, as a parent... I've got a challenge. You know, I've got to figure out what hath God wrought. Those of you that have more than one children, have you noticed that they're different? You can't assume that the second one's going to be like the first one, or the third one's going to be like the first two. They're all different because God creates individually, specifically for his purposes. Our job as parents is to discern what God has created that child to do. 
Our job as pastors is to discern what people have been created to do. Our job as business owners and managers is to discern what God's created people to do. And then to equip those people and release those people to do God's work. You see, holistic Christianity is extremely powerful. It will release you to a level of living that nothing else will. Now, if you live in dualism and partial dualism, thinking that work and public policy are not the purview of the church, then you're probably going to be very lukewarm. There is a pastor up in Minnesota who has uh, built a pretty good-sized church. And uh, his, um, one of his church members came to him and said to him, uh, Pastor, since we know Jesus and we have the Word of God and we have the Holy Spirit to guide us, shouldn't we be the ones ruling our communities? I mean, after all, we know God's law. We know what laws to enact. You know, we know how to run things better. The pastor turned to the lady and says, You know, I really don't think that we have any particular angle on any of that. The only thing we need to do is just, you know, love Jesus and love people. You hear that? That's partial dualism. What do you, what do you think it did to that lady? Psst, deflated her. This lady had a vision for the kingdom of God ruling and reigning throughout that community, in the businesses, in public policy, in the schools, in the families, in the homes. The pastor encouraged her to be lukewarm. That is a tragedy. Lord, deliver us from that. We don't want that. Do you want that? Isn't it wonderful to know that you count? You know, it's interesting to me as I do the seminar that I did up here for you guys, I find the same experience happens every time. It's like people light up. And I'm convinced the reason they light up is because most people have bought into the lie that they don't count. Do you hear that's a lie? That is a lie. And if you don't think you count, then you act like you don't count. That's what happens. Well, all I do in the seminars tell you the truth. You count. God made you for a reason. And your job is to discern what it is and do it. So the challenge is, will we step up and do that? That's the challenge for you today. It's a challenge for you every day. In fact, I would submit to you what you need to be doing every morning when you rise up is you need to be reporting for duty. You have an assignment that day to do the bidding of your Heavenly Father, to do the works that He's called you to do, wherever it is. You may be moving dirt like R.G. Letourneau. Moving dirt, selling cars, selling grain, being a farmer, whatever it is that God has called you to do, that's what you need to be doing that day. Doing it according to his principles, so you need to be talking to your pastor and be discipled by somebody who can train you in the Word of God so you can learn the principles of Scripture that apply to your life. So when you go out every day, you are on assignment, equipped, prepared, to do the work of the Lord. That's the job. That's the, that's the task for all of us. So, Lord, give us the grace to do that. In Jesus' name. May I pray for you? Lord, we thank you for your truth. We thank you for the powerful reality that you are an intentional, purposeful God who creates all things for a reason. And you've created everyone in this room for a reason. And you, you said, Lord, that they count in your kingdom. 
So, Lord, give us the grace to step up, to report for duty, to be equipped and prepared by our church here to do our assignments and bring forth the kingdom of God in this place in whatever you've assigned us to do. Father, give us grace to walk it out. And, Lord, protect us from being lukewarm. In Jesus' precious name, amen.